It's not as though we understand our whole money story in one fell sweep. We sit down, we write our autobiography about money, we're done. It's something we're learning for years and years and years. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Barry Tesler. Barry is one of my favorite voices in the personal finance space. She's the founder of Art of Money and is a financial therapist, mentor, coach, and mamapreneur. Her book, Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness, is a beautiful work that helps people connect with their money emotions, build the technical habits they need to create financial success, and set meaningful money goals for their futures. Today, we're going to talk about her money system and how her own life and finances changed after she became a mom. As always, stick around till the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Barry, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Barry, that's B-A-R-I, to download your free Healthy Money Mantras guide and to access the complete show notes of this episode. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Barry, how are you? I'm pretty well, still just waking up, but have been looking forward to this for a while. We're really excited to have you on. I was mentioning before we jumped on that Art of Money, which is your book, is one of my favorite personal finance books of all time. I think it's so insightful, so beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. And I want to tell people a little bit about your story first, because what's interesting when you start that book is that people found it was surprising when you originally started working in bookkeeping and money. So what was your journey to start working in the money space? I always like to tell the story that growing up, I either wanted to be a solid gold dancer, that dates you, but there's a TV show with great dancers, or a businesswoman. I wrote my seventh grade book report on that. And then at 16, I asked to go to therapy. The field of psychology and psychotherapy became very interesting to me. I wanted to be one of those three things. And I feel that my work today is a combination of dance movement with being a businesswoman with psychotherapy. But the short story of that was that I, at the age of 24, so I finished my undergrad in history, still had no idea what I was going to do, how I was going to create a career, livelihood. There was a whole long story, but I found out about somatic psychology at Naropa University. I started that at the age of 24. And I went there because I needed to learn how to listen to my own body. I had such big emotions That when I was younger, I was going into my room, dancing them out to loud music. I would come out and then be able to articulate through words what I was feeling, right? When I found graduate programs in somatic psychology, it was an incredible moment for me. So I went to that school to learn those life skills that I needed and then to be able to work with clients and bring them to my clients. So, But my study during that time, I thought my topics would be body, sexuality, food, intimacy, grief, and death. I worked in the mental health field for those years. I worked in hospice, both from the bereavement side to overnight care. I led authentic movement groups. I wrote a 150-page thesis. I did internships. You know, it, was, it took me four years, I think, really, to finally walk across the stage with that master's. When my school loan came due, that was a huge moment when I realized that Money was completely missing from my graduate program as we were training and studying to be therapists. And my mind was blown 
in that moment because I didn't realize that as I was in the, the training. We didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about how to set up our own private practices, do the bookkeeping, let alone our own money stories, our own money emotions, let alone how to work with couples around all the money dynamics that came up. So it was such a terrifying moment, actually, because I didn't know how I was going to pay back that student loan. I was making $11 an hour with a master's degree as a social worker counselor. Then I realized it wasn't just graduate school. There's nothing in college. There was one accounting class in high school, on and on, right? And I, I certainly learned pieces of how to manage money, but just pieces growing up in a middle-class family. There was a moment where I started asking new questions. How was I going to break through this money ceiling of $11 an hour? How was I going to create a livelihood that I could do the work that I loved and make a nice living? I think at the time I really wanted to get some self-care. I wanted a massage and I wanted to bring really good dark chocolate to potluck parties. That, those are my goals, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and basically, I decided to take a detour and take a break from the mental health social work field for a moment. And I took a job in an accounting department, accounts receivable, making $13 an hour. And they bumped me up to 15 pretty quickly. And I remember everyone around me was confused. <laughs> what are you doing? This is the oddest detour. This doesn't make sense. And I just had this inner voice of, yes, this looks odd. It does not make sense, especially for you, Barry, who threw away her bank statements in graduate school. My my roommates, you remember that very well. I thought I was taking this little job for a few months to move past the money ceiling to see what it was like to make 13 an hour and then 15. And at some point I met a contractor who said, Oh, you're a bookkeeper. And I said, no, <laughs> uh, I am learning accounts receivable. He said, well, I'm going to teach you QuickBooks and I'll pay you 20 an hour. And once you learn my books, then I'll pay you 25. And I, mine was blown. I, I could not make those leaps and, you know, go through those money ceilings in my, with my master's in psychology at that time yet, but I was able to do it in this other way. And it was incredibly empowering for me to learn Quicken and QuickBooks. These were bookkeeping systems, any bookkeeping system I never imagined myself learning. You you know, I come from the opposite end of the spectrum as you, from you, you know, just a dancer psychology background and was not good at math growing up. And so I had really equated, like many, if I can't do math, then I can't do money. If I can't do math, I can't do bookkeeping. When someone sat me down and showed me first how to use Quicken and Excel and then this wonderful contractor, Jeff, showed me how to use QuickBooks slowly. Then I would teach it years, not years later, but so many years later. And I would sit down with tissues and dark chocolate and we would take breaks you know, and check in. It was incredibly empowering. I thought the other side of my brain was getting turned on, like light bulbs everywhere. And it just felt so good. And then I started doing my own bookkeeping. Pretty quickly, we moved to California and I wound up starting my own bookkeeping business for therapists and coaches and artists and contractors. People had no idea or could care less. They didn't know I had a master's in psychology. They just did not want to have anything to do with their bookkeeping and threw it at me and were thrilled that I was doing it. And I always say I learned more about human nature, money psychology, money patterns and dynamics by doing other people's bookkeeping for a few years. And then that led into my financial therapy work. It's so interesting that your master's in psychology didn't talk about money. It's not surprising from what we know about 
the practice and how it's developed. But when we think about even couples therapy, when so many couple issues seem to be derived from money arguments that we're not talking about what's the root of those issues. Now, this was 20 years ago, right? And yet I still get so many therapists who come do my training to do their own work. And they're still not learning about how to have a healthy relationship and how to work with couples dynamics. So one day we will. One day we will. (laughs) Yes. But when did you start to blend in your somatic practices, your therapy practices in with money training? As I was running the bookkeeping business, I had the honor of meeting a woman named Tamara Slayton. She's not alive anymore. She passed away many years ago. I I got to be friends with her the last two years of her life. It turns out she was a woman who mentored a lot of young women over her life. And she also was the mother of five children. And all her kids went through Waldorf. And my son's in Montessori, so it's a different philosophy, right? But that was where she came from. I was doing her bookkeeping And we started having many money conversations. She was a student of Rudolf Steiner. And there were some money teachings there from how do you work with your business, but not personal finance. We just kept chatting and chatting. And at some point, she said, young lady, it's time for you to give a talk. But I I don't know what you called it, your money methodology or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? You know? She knew that I was trying to understand or how to make sense with this previous training as a psychotherapist and how deep we go and how we hold space for people and the ebbs and flows of life and all the emotions, right? And all the same emotions come up around money as well and doing the deeper work around money stories with all of these very practical tools of bookkeeping and money management. She knew that I was trying to integrate them. And so that's where she said, young lady, it's time. And she said, I'm going to gather a group of people. And, you know, we're going to send out a little welcome invitation and come to this. And I basically did what I what I do in moments. I go on a walk in the woods. I talk to myself and I talk to the trees and I say, I remember saying, what am I supposed to bring back? What are some concepts? What are some ideas? What are some phases? How can I help people have a healthy, creative, savvy, conscious, those are my words at the time, you know, playful, meaningful relationship to money on a practical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. I used to say that over and over. And I, and I remember, you know, after that walk in the woods, I came home at the time, this was almost 20 years ago. I was living in a tiny cabin in the redwoods of California with my boyfriend, who's now my husband. He immediately could see like sparks were flying. I was really excited. He threw up some white paper And we mapped out the three phases of the art of money methodology, which at the time we called conscious bookkeeping. And the three phases then were financial therapy, values-based bookkeeping, and life vision planning. I called it that conscious bookkeeping for 10 years. And I taught in tiny groups of 10 people over and over and over live in my living room. I moved to an apple orchard next, and then it (laughs) grew to 20 people, you know, and then after so many years... 50 people. And I was one night driving to San Francisco. I mean, one night was in my living room. One night, then I drive to San Francisco. The next night, Oakland. The next night, Santa Cruz. The next night. (laughs) So I was teaching about three classes per week in different places, one in my living room. And I just did that over and over and over. 
that simple little framework that I came up with and that little cabin in the woods with my husband. My husband's always been the namer of everything. He came up with financial therapy in 2001. And I remember going online and Googling that. And there was one other person in Canada who was using that term and we became friends. He's always helped me, you know, he comes in later too, once I have my first child and he helped, and I can talk about that. He helped me get completely set up online. So it was a moment where I went to the woods, gathered this information, came home. We created the three phases. I gave my very first talk. I was terrified, you know, <laughs> and I was trying to stay in my body and, you know, all the negative thoughts I was replacing with good thoughts or all the negative thoughts. I was on a PC at the time, so I would delete them. I'm going to delete those thoughts and replace them with good ones. So that's where I was. <laughs> And I gave it and it was sweet. And from there is when I started gathering my little community. And that's when I started putting out the invitations for the 10 person group and so on. And now it's, you know, money healing, money practices and money maps. So I just simplified it, but it's the same. And then I started creating little exercises and handouts and questions and prompts. And I fine tuned it. And each class I learned what worked, what didn't, what questions was I missing, what concepts was I missing? Just really did that, taught that work over and over and over. And also at that time, I was teaching people how to use QuickBooks. I had stopped doing bookkeeping, I think the third year, and completely replaced that income by teaching my small groups. That was so exciting. You know, <laughs> that's and I amazing. Shifted into that business model. I was starting to do some financial therapy with couples. That's, you know, really how it all began before about seven years in, everything changed when I got pregnant. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I definitely want to talk about that shift. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about this system, right? And money healing being the first step. Why do we need to think about the, our emotional relationship with money before we can really get to practices and goals and systems? I think that was something that I was questioning over and over at the beginning. What's the order is there right order? What I noticed for most of the folks that were coming to me is that they needed to do some of the money healing work. And there's a few different parts of that that I can articulate so much better than back in the day. I look yeah. at my bio and I'm like, oh, that was so cute or sweet. Body-centered bookkeeper. I think I called myself a body-centered bookkeeper. For me, number one, is financial literacy and emotional literacy go hand in hand. And when I was initially reading all the money books, now this was 25 years ago or 20 years ago, they were mostly written by white males. They were very much about tough love. There's one way to do it. This is the right way to do it. Emotion was completely pulled out of that. And everything inside of me was, okay, that's not going to work for me or... <laughs> There's emotions here. You know, there's a lot of emotions around money. So I wanted to give people tools on how to name what those money emotions are, learn how to not just name them, but feel them and move them and work with them. And then they can move on to money stories. And, and I'll, I've so much. And so what else do I want to say about that? The very first tool I brought to my work is what I call the body check in. People say this is their favorite tool, that it's the most life-changing. It's so simple. Like any tool, it needs to be practiced over and over and over. It's not one and done. And this is simply a tool of checking in with your body, your sensations, your breath, 
your physicality, what is going on in that moment, to learn more, to bring more awareness to your money emotions, to bring more awareness to your money stories and patterns and dynamics. And I invite people to do this before a money conversation, in the middle of one, after one is a debriefing or whatever you can remember. Sometimes we forget to do it before and we're in the heat of the moment, we remember, or after we catch ourselves. When you're going to go online and check your balances, when you're going to make a money decision. Again, it's so simple. It's something to be practiced over and over and over. It doesn't mean immediately you're going to be calm. All the money emotions, as you know, from anxiety to anger to fear to sadness to shame. So many more. What am I missing? Guilt, anger, sadness, fear, shame, right? All the anxiety (laughs) to the other side, to excitement and hope and joy and meaning. And everywhere in between, there's fight, flight, and freeze, which I also talk about. Those are more complex emotions that come up. So there's just that. You know, I think many people are taught, like, to ignore the emotions if they come up, put them to the side. For many people, that just makes it worse. It makes you more overwhelmed. It makes you stuck. If you would just allow yourself a moment to just sit with it, name it, bring a little gentleness, compassion, understanding will come. Feelings move quicker once you just are present with them. It's such an important and helpful tool for the long run. Even in those moments when a check comes and you're out for dinner or how it used to be when we were with a group of friends (laughs) and we were, you know, we all had thoughts and feelings in that moment of who's going to pay. Well, they make more money. I make less or, or I have family money, so I should pay more. Or, you know, we all have all those things. If we could take a deep breath. Notice what's coming up for us and maybe even bravely bring up a money conversation in that moment to talk about it a little bit, you know, so that you can all decide what's the right way to go here. That's number one, is understanding all the different emotions that come up and what they are. The same emotions that come up in every other area of our life. And it doesn't mean one day we're going to figure out how to get rid of them. What we do is we're human and emotions will come up, but we can learn how to work with them. Yes, they do diminish. They get smaller. So that's number one. Can you give us an example of what one of these money stories, money triggers is and how maybe for you or for one of your clients that you've worked with, it's changed how they could approach these money conversations once they understood the story? Yeah. Well, so we haven't even gotten into stories. I was just talking about the emotions, right? That's just the emotions. Yeah. Right. So the money story is, is just our history, our money patterns, what we learned from our family of origin, whoever was raising us and grandparents, whoever was there, that consolation. The class we grew up in, our lineage and ethnicity, did we grow up with religion, spirituality? What was our role amongst our siblings? From day one, I was known as the spender. My siblings were both the savers. (laughs) They had banks at age five. I always had things I wanted. You know, I wanted to buy my mom the school ring. I wanted the candy. I want, you know... And those had negative or positive labels on them right up, depending on what family constellation you were born into. So there's so much there. That's part of our money story. And then also our personality, right? So we're, me and my siblings all do money differently, even though we are raised with the same parents. So then there's that and understanding what your money story is. And again, at the time, I didn't want to go back and stay there forever, but I thought it was important to go back a bit to get some gems, to have some understanding And it's not as though we understand our whole money story in one fell sweep. We sit down, we write our autobiography about money, we're done. It's something we're learning for years and years and years. You know, when I was 
writing the Art of Money book, which, you know, so it was published four years ago. I was writing it five years ago, five, six years ago. As I was writing the chapter on it's about money and not about money. So it's about money because most of us, as we've already said, did not receive a complete financial education from grades gone up. It's not about money because it's all about these deeper meanings that we put on it or that it connects to around self-worth, about responsibility, around safety, around power. And that chapter surprised me. I didn't know that was going to be in there. The power one was very personal. And I realized that that was one of the biggest dynamics that I was dealing with growing up with my father. There was a lot of generosity growing up in a middle-class family, and then a lot of power dynamics and a lot of rules that were not clearly explained. I always felt that there was this power over dynamic happening that I wanted to get out of. And it was everything from in college, so generous, they paid for my undergrad, not my graduate by school. By that time, I was on my own. But every Friday, I had to make photocopies of my little manual checkbook registers. That's it. back in the day. You know, so I wrote <laughs> everything down of where I was spending money, and I would send them to my father. But then there was no conversations on what to do. I had a budget. What was your limit? It was just photocopies. So it was do this thing, but there wasn't a second piece. And then another very generous moment, my parents let me go to Italy. How privileged, right? I got to go to Italy for my junior year in college, but there were no rules around what my limits were around spending, what I could and could not do. I didn't know how to ask those questions at the time. My parents really should have, but they didn't know how to do that because they didn't learn that from their parents. So there was one time where I was in Italy. We went away for the weekend. I came back. We went away to France, came back, called my mom and dad on the payphone. My dad heard I went. He was furious. He decided to not send me money for a full month. While oh my I gosh. Was, you know, so I was terrified. Yes, again, very privileged, generous family. And at the same time, I didn't have any money while I was in this study abroad program and didn't know what to do with that. And, and you know, so my father was always like, go get a job, which I do appreciate at 15. Go apply for jobs and come back. But no teaching on like, what do you want to do? What are you good at? What's your skill set? How do you give an interview? So there was just so much mix there that that power little section in my book was very personal. I had to make a lot of decisions rebelling against my father and also wanting to do things different and individuating and needing to individuate from him. And there was a crucial point at 23 where he wanted me to go to Japan to teach English so I can come back learning Japanese fluently. I'd been studying it a few summers. The most I could do was order sushi at the sushi bar, which was fun. And I love sushi still. And at the last hour, I decided to not do that, not do his grand business plan for me or his life plan. And I went to Israel and was there for a year. And that's when I learned in Jerusalem that there were graduate programs in dance movement therapy and semantic psychology. And that break from him, that individuation was so important. It led to many other things. I needed to make money in a different way, even though he was a businesswoman, I became a creative entrepreneur. But there was a lot of like, this was one person who had a huge influence on me around money and where I learned a very negative power dynamic. It also led me to not choosing I, <laughs> um, a man that I grew up where I grew up in Chicago in the suburbs, uh, not marrying a man like my father. I wanted to find 
a hippie man. I found a hippie. <laughs> this was, again, years ago, where we both grew together. We both learned how to create a livelihood, make money in accordance to their values, do really good work in the world and grow together, you know, and not have that power dynamic, you know, have it be so not traditional, you know, equal in every way where he even sometimes appears to be doing a lot more than I do in the family dynamic. But that's a little personal story of how money story plays out. But, you know, I knew that to some degree, and even though I was teaching this work, it took me until much later in adulthood when I was writing the book to uncover that very part of my money story. Some of this is hidden. Some of it, we money stories, we get in memories. We remember our mother playing, paying bills at the kitchen table, analog style. You remember fighting in the background or behind closed doors, or you remember you got to make your own money and how that felt. And so those are money stories. And then there's more work around forgiveness and completions and so this worked for me. I remember the very, when I first started teaching my class, I had the very first night I had people go right into money stories and talk about their past. And I realized too deep, too quick, too deep, too quick. And I need to first give them the tools of how to slow down, how to listen to their body, how to name what the feelings were, to learn that somatic tool first even just what are the emotions that come up for you around money or what's your current relationship to money around spending, saving, giving, investing. You know, I had to start there before we started diving into the past work. And so that was, well, that was a big shift that I had to make pretty quickly when I saw like people's shock shut down. I've known over the years that for most people, once they do some of that work, even just practicing the body check-in, once they get to the second phase, which is starting to learn a bookkeeping system, starting to learn what your numbers are, looking at your bank balances, you know, then they have the tools to calm themselves down in those moments. They're much more excited and interested. And I teach it in fun, creative ways as well that gets folks engaged. Yeah, there are certainly folks who read my book or take my year-long program that say, I just had to get to the bookkeeping right away before I did the money healing. And I say, great, this is not rigid. And some people go and learn Quicken or YNAB or QuickBooks or Mint. They just get themselves on Mint. They just want to have some data quickly to get a handle on that. And then they can start working with the emotions and money story. But for the majority of folks, giving themselves the time and space to learn those money healing tools, once they get to the money practices, it's a whole different ballgame. I find it really interesting that that chapter of the it's not about money, uh, or it's, it's about money, but it's not about money chapter wasn't originally something you thought would be in there. To give you a little bit of personal story, we when we, I first read the book, my husband and I have been talking about money for years and years. Obviously, that's my background as well, right? He's talking about money. And whenever we got into money stories, he was always like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know how to connect with the story and whatever. And so we read that chapter together with the five common roots. We actually went out to dinner and we were talking through it and he read the responsibility one and he was like, oh my gosh. So guys, in that chapter, Barry has sections of like signs that these might be things that you struggle with. And it really opened up for him what some of those root things were. And he's been able to work on them since. And so I found that to be a really powerful chapter. I'm glad that you put that in there and put in your own story about power. That was, that was amazing. 
Yeah, I don't know if you remember what those five were. It was responsibility, safety, power, self-worth, probably. Self-worth. Val- value, self-worth. And yeah, yeah, I don't remember what the fifth back. one was. Okay, we'll have to. Yeah, <laughs> I'll but come that's, up with- that's great to hear. And I've gotten that feedback that people love that chapter and that happened during the writing process when I was working with my co-writer. Yeah. Mm, Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, I want to talk about your concept of money maps. But before we do, let's take a quick break to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. We'll be right back. Are you ready for the money event of the year? Our free Mamas Talk Money Summit featuring over 40 of the best women in personal finance and business is happening October 12th through the 16th. We're going all out this year. We'll have live Q&A with speakers, thousands of dollars in giveaways, worksheets to help you take action on everything you learn, and so much more. We're going to be talking about everything from mindset and budgeting to finding passion-driven work and building generational wealth. Oh, and did I mention it's completely free? Grab your ticket now at mamastalkmoney.com and come talk money with us. So the first process is this healing. The second is systems, which you touched on a little bit when we were figuring out our bookkeeping and whatever. And I want to be able to get to your story about when you became a mom. So the last one, just real quick, can you talk to us about money maps? Because I love this concept. I do want to say one more about money practices though. So and it's similar to what you teach. It's money as a self-care practice. Okay. Love that concept. And how do you do that in reality? And I talk about practices again on a practical level. What do you do on an emotional, psychological, and spiritual level? What are these practices? And within that, I teach money dates, you know, and money dates can be five minutes, can be 30 minutes, can be an hour. They can be with yourself. They can be with your partner. They could be with your business partner. They could be with your kids at some point, right? Age appropriate. And it's just sitting down and giving attention to money. What needs attention? Do I need to look at my balances? Do I need to learn a bookkeeping system? Do I need a bookkeeping trainer to sit me down? And hold my hand metaphorically, or am I someone who can just learn mint and YNAB on my own? You know, we're all so different. And on and on. The other piece of that, though, is I I do a concept called renaming, values-based renaming, where for some people, this is what gets them interested in bookkeeping, you know, from it's boring, dull, dry to wait a second, I get to incorporate my values or what's meaningful to me or some playfulness and creativity. Wow. And it's just having people rename everything from instead of mortgage or rent, they could rename it home or sanctuary or love shack, or they can rename a debt to that damn debt to what was going on in my life. What big transition, what big change, what big trip did I take? Or was this a health issue? You know, and really naming it to honor it. So I'm just bookmarking that as for some people, that's really fun is to rename their categories. And for other people, they're like, no, I I like rent. I like mortgage, groceries. Those are fine categories, you know. For other people, that's the only way they're going to sit down. And then they see themselves in the bookkeeping. It's their life. It's not someone else's money. It's them. No one else is telling them what to do. And that leads into the money maps part. Um, The money maps is really helping people understand their present relationship to money, their past and future. Some of us, I remember this, I had such a hard time thinking about the future, your background, that's natural to you. You yeah. know, anyone in from financial planners, financial advisors, like you think in the future. You're always planning for what could possibly happen, good, bad, all of it. Some people like me, we have a hard time thinking about the future. There's so many reasons why. We don't think there's going to be a future. We don't think we're going to live past a certain date. We can't see it. We're afraid to dream or vision or to look and on and on. This part, Money Maps, is 
really honoring what phase of life you are in, also what the actual numbers are, and helping you map that out, and helping you start to adjust and fine-tune and play around with what are your intentions, what are your goals, what are your dreams, and really connected with the numbers. You know, I remember when I did a a business plan, the only part I did of that business plan was the projections, the financial <laughs> projections, because I, I fell in love with this area of life. And we do it in three tiers. I like to break it down to basic needs, bottom line, lifestyle. We all define that differently based on where we're at. Basic needs 10 years ago will look really different for you, probably. So first tier is basic needs, bottom line. The second tier is comfortable. The third tier is ultimate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I like renaming, so rename them if you don't like those words, right? I've had people do needs, wants, desires. I'll explain this, and then I want to tell one short story. You sit down, and first you just define the concept. Like, what a basic needs, what does it feel like? What does it look like for you? And then, yeah, write down the actual categories. We have spreadsheets for this, you know, or use Excel. You put down the actual numbers of what basic needs looks like for you. So either you have bookkeeping system and you have that data or you go online and you add everything up with your online baking. But that's a whole exercise in itself. Again, some people this comes natural. Some people they may need to work with someone. Some people they may just give themselves an hour to like list out what the basic needs expenses are, how they define that. Like, is there a massage in there? For some people, no way. Basic needs, nope. That goes uncomfortable. For other people, depending on what phase of life they're in, they may include that there. There's no right or wrong here. We're all different. The next you get to comfortable and then you decide what gets added in. Is your debt completely paid off? Do you consider traveling? Do you give more? It's more self-care, right? And then ultimate, what does that look like? What's fascinating is that it looks different for every single person in every single family. What's my comfortable, someone's ultimate. What's someone's comfortable, someone's basic needs. The numbers are so different based on phase of life, where we live in the world, our work, and so on, Right. I once worked with someone privately, and she had such a hard time wrapping her head around this because she was having two really strong voices in her head. One was the social activist in her. She was a big part of that community. The other voice was her her mother, who only thinks in luxury and comes from family wealth. So she was having these two polarizing thoughts and very different money tiers. So I had her sit down and do a tier for the activists. And what that would look like and what those numbers would look like, right? I had her do a tear for her mom, how her mom lives, what's important to her mom. After she did those two tears, then she was able to come to her own tear in the middle. And that was what was right for her. She had such competing voices of this is how you do it. It's right. It's wrong. This is how you budget. This is what life should look like. She had to get those out of her head with the actual numbers before she can come up with a middle tear for herself. I like that getting the things out on paper for other people, other voices. That's got to be really helpful to even as you're writing it down, I think having that experience of, you know, that doesn't really fit for me. I don't know how I feel about this. I really like having those tiers and and then goals to shoot for. I think too, like once you're, especially if you're early on and you're struggling, you can be like, okay, I've covered basic, like I've achieved this. Right. So this is exercise number one, or this is like, there are many, many parts to this. This takes a while. It may take a few sitting. There's going to be rough drafts. And then it's how do you integrate this into your weekly or monthly, quarterly, yearly money dates, right? Most people pick one tier, and this is what they're going for, whether it's for the year or just six months. 
This is where, yeah, I would take those numbers. Those are my intentions. That was my goal. And I would throw them into QuickBooks in the projections or budgeting area. And I remember, you know, that was one of my favorite bookkeeping reports. I mean, my favorite was looking at every month during a money date, what came in, you know, income and expenses, profit and loss for that month, and then being able to look at it versus last year and compare it to what I did last year. (laughs) And then, you know, it's sitting down and comparing it to what your projections are. Then body check-ins, because maybe you're over, maybe you're under, maybe you're spending more. Okay, so what's going on? Are you working more? Are you eating out more? What's working? What's not working? Yes, judgment's going to come up. Hello, but we're going to put it to the side, give it some tea and chocolate. I like to at first just give yourself quite a few months to just understand what your numbers are, what your cash flow patterns are, what's working, what's not, and really work with all those voices. You know, sometimes we think we should have a certain food budget. If we'd really talk with people in our area or with also with kids, we may realize we're not that far out or maybe this is our biggest area besides mortgage and rent. Okay, so that's a top value and priority for you. And you need to then adjust in other areas. So it's, you know, it's then sitting down on money dates or working with a bookkeeper or working with your your spouse and starting to really look at, look at these numbers, what's working, what's not, what, what you need to adjust. There's no perfect. It's not a rigid diet. It's an ongoing dance. That's how I see it. And it's something to keep fine-tuning and adjusting every month and every quarter and every year to keep you on track with your values and then curveballs happen. And that's a whole other thing, right? Of how to <laughs> yeah. work with that. Absolutely. And that evolution and just keeping your budget, your spending plan, your money map, whatever you want to call it, fluid for the, your life and your expectations change, which I'm actually going to shift into talking about when you had your son and when you got pregnant with your son. And I think that there's these major life shifts that happen that change our whole relationship with money, our whole expectation with money. And becoming a parent is a big one. What was the shift in your business, your own money mindset when you were welcoming your son? I was seven years into my business, which I'm grateful I had that foundation. I was in the business model of, I was in my third business model. I had a team of bookkeeping trainers and financial coaches under my umbrella. I would go give the inspiring talks, share my methodology, and then say, you know, take my group or small group or go work with a bookkeeping trainer privately, right, to learn a bookkeeping system or go work with a financial coach to learn how to budget and do a money map. It was a great business model. It was wonderful. I had a wonderful team of all women. And the team of women was everything from women in the accounting field who decided to take yoga trainings on the side or bookkeepers going to get their master's in psychology. So it was a great business model. But I woke up in my 38th year and after not wanting to have kids or not thinking it was not feeling it was my path, I woke up in that year and everything changed. And the only next step on my path was to have a child. I knew he would be a son and I knew his name was Noah and I knew he was coming. And, you know, that could have not worked out the way it did. Right. You know, I dropped hints all year with my husband because we were a no. We signed the invisible dotted line, no kids. <laughs> and I had to drop seeds all year that he was not picking up. And so it wasn't until the very end of my 38th year, he finally picked up the seed and we went to therapy. And within six weeks, he did a lot of work while I sat there quietly. And when I want something, I'm not quiet. Um, but I, <laughs> I just sat there quiet because it was her t- his turn to do his own work. He, he had a very challenging father. 
abusive father, beautiful mother, luckily. And he just always equated parenting with his childhood. And he had to unravel that and realize he'd be a different father. His child could have a different childhood. He came to a yes. We came to a yes. We left the building. There was actually an earthquake. I know this is a little dramatic of a story (laughs) in the building while we were still in it. And we went home that night. It wasn't a huge earthquake, a mild one, but still it shook the building. And we went home and we conceived our son. And I always like to tell the story that there's always beautiful, easeful moments and very challenging moments to every journey. Very beautiful conception, right? That doesn't work out for everyone. That was the smooth, easy part. Then pregnancy and all that. And then when my son came, we had a huge challenge in my labor. We had a my placenta erupted. Luckily, I had made the call a half an hour before, after trying for hours and hours for a home birth, I made the call that we were going to the hospital. I told my midwife, I told my husband, I said, we're going to the hospital. (laughs) And we got there and within 30 minutes, I was hemorrhaging and they finally realized what was going on, placenta abruption. You know, I had a C-section and we luckily both came out very healthy. He came out healthy. I had a hell of a recovery. That transition, that threshold for me changed so much. I realized within a month or so, one, I had to let go of my entire team. I wanted to go back to a one-woman show. I wanted to be home with my son, and I had to be. The recovery was long and hard. So a few things happened. I let go of my entire team, and I had a business partner at the time. And we parted ways, and we had mediation and did the best parting that we could, and we're still connected, and I still referred her for, refer to her. She's a wonderful financial coach. I went back to a one-woman show, and in that moment, my husband got me completely online. But the biggest thing was that I couldn't be working 40, 50, 60-plus hours like I was <laughs> with all that energy and time, and I really honestly had 10 hours a week. In that first year, I had to ask myself some brand new questions of what can I do while recovering, while terribly sleep deprived, my son did not sleep until he was three, he was up every few hours, and I, and what can I do to still bring in income? So our income dramatically decreased. I had to say over and over, transition, 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 we're in a transition. My husband also was laid off right as, yeah, we found out that we were pregnant. Oh, and, my gosh. Yeah, and we, but it was also the doorway that we were waiting for a doorway so that we could leave California and come back to Boulder. I was in Boulder in my 20s for graduate school. We moved to California for seven years. That's where I started all of my work. And so we were waiting. And so this was the doorway to come back because Boulder's, everything is within 15 to 20 minutes, where California, everything was like within a few hours to drive <laughs> in all our community. We moved back to Boulder while I was four months pregnant. My husband was just laid off. Within a year, I let go of my whole team. Going from two steady income streams, because I was in a really steady, consistent, sustainable business model, and my husband's loss of income, it was scary. It brought up so much. It challenged everything again, which I think, you know, in any of these threshold transitions, it does. I had to keep saying to myself, this is a transition. Then I started asking myself, because I, I had the impulse to stop working. Oh, I just turned 40. So I, within a few months, I turned 40. 
I think part of me would have let go of everything. And then I had too many people say, you can't let go of your work. It's too needed. Then I started asking these new questions of what can I do within 10 hours while I'm recovering, so sleep deprived, what will bring in the most income that I love the most? And that was my group program. I was able to do two of them that year with about 50 students online. And that's what I did and was pretty quiet for two years. As soon as I started kind of sleeping again, then really sleeping again, that's when shifted into a new business model, brought back a team again, oh, created a home study program. Then when he was turning four, that's when I got the vision for the year-long program and had already had all the content and developed the relationship with colleagues and financial planners and accountants, you know, to have them be guest teachers and on and on. And that was a huge leap in income again. But, you know, I was quiet for those four, two to three years. And it was challenging. And it was a phase that we had to get through and decrease a lot of expenses during that time. But also self-care for my son. He needed a certain chiropractic work and I needed certain healing work. That was kind of non-negotiable. And then when my son turned four, then big increase in revenue again. And I was sleeping and it was a whole new, whole new time. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many parts of this story that are so amazing. And I think the first being that we're going to go through these transitions, right? Like even when we think we've got it figured out and we've got our system, like things happen that we need to be willing to go back to the drawing board a little bit and rethink and process and do the work whether it's marriage or kids or divorce or whatever it is. The second part is that it's okay to take a step back sometimes. I think a lot of people, when they've built careers, they've built businesses, wouldn't have had the courage to let their team go, even if they felt like they needed to. They would have run themselves ragged. What was that thought process like for you when you finally made the decision that like, I have to let my team go and go back to one person? Did you have any doubts? Did you need support to make that decision? Everything that you're saying is what I was considering and pondering, you know, was in businesses, you grow, grow, grow. Like that's, <laughs> that's the word <laughs> on the streets. You, you are always looking to expand and grow. And it was the antithesis of that. And I knew so many women that just kept down with their businesses in so many different ways once they had babies. And I had a colleague who called me from the hospital room after delivering her second child because it went so well and it was so easy. And a few hours later, she was kind of bored in the hospital bed and she was creating her second, her new business. It was asking, oh I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> so I'm not that kind of woman. And it, you know, it's so funny, the type A, type B. I always said I'm not a type A, but then when I read about type A, it was so much about needing to make your own decisions, can't have a boss. All, and I was like, oh, I'm type A, you know, in that regard. And yet I've always had this ability to slow down and listen on a deeper level. It was my training in graduate school. That's what I learned through and through was how to slow down, how to listen, how to go on hikes or wherever I need to it, take a shower, whatever you take a bath, something to check in on a really deep level to say, What's the right move for now? Similar to when I took that accounting job. Yes, it was the opposite of grow, grow, grow. But I also was really having talks with myself around there's ebbs and flows in life. I need to simplify. I need to simplify in order to recover and make it through this time 
in the healthiest way so that I could eventually, hopefully, thrive again. And I just had to trust all of that. Again, it looked odd. It, you know, didn't look whatever. <laughs> it didn't look <laughs> the traditional route. And I'm okay making those decisions. And they're not odd. You know, it's just listening deeply to what's the right move in that moment. And yes, it was hard. It was hard letting go of my business partner. On my birthday, when I was four months pregnant, she sent me like a 500 page calendar to get my shit together, to get my, you know, to get my, I was throwing up and she sent me a calendar. And I was like, for my birthday, I was like, oh, okay. You know, she's not a mom and she doesn't get, she doesn't get it. And we're, you know, we, we are on different paths here. And that was kind of like a seed to let me see we're just, we're on different paths and, and all I can be is true to my own path. And it surprised me. I really thought I would just continue on my way as a mom with my business, with my work, have the team. Even when I was pregnant, I flew back to San Francisco twice with my big belly, did one day workshops with a sign on my belly saying Noah's in there, you know, Noah's <laughs> inside. And I loved it. It was tiring, but I, I still really enjoyed it. So I just had no idea what was on the other side and just, you know, took a few months to really consider what's the right move. I upset everyone. Everyone was upset. Some people understood. Some people got, came, everyone came back later and understood. I had to be willing to disappoint other people in order to really stay true. And, you know, I'm always talking about the equation of money, time, energy, family, and health. There's no numbers just something I play around with those five areas. And I'm always like moving them around, which is priority what's going on. And at that time, it was clearly my health and being a new mom and spending as much time and just luxuriating and being with my son. Barry, as we start to wrap up here, what advice do you have for moms, kind of closing advice, who are trying to reconnect with their emotions around money and really start their practice of building their better relationship with money? You know, I can give three tools. And the first one, though, is the body check-in. And it's something you can start today. And just insert, you know, body check-in when you're going to look at your balances, body check-in when you're going to make a money decision, when you're, you're online shopping, <laughs> and, you know, maybe hit pause, ask yourself a few set of questions. Do I really want this? Do I really need this? Do I have one of these? Do I really think I'll enjoy it down the road? At some point, I started giving myself questions to ask in small money purchases and medium and large. And I didn't have those questions back in the day. I'd just be in the moment kind of freaking out in a car dealership. And then I realized, oh, I need some questions to ask. Is this decision in alignment with my values? Do we have the cash flow for it? Is it going to hinder a larger goal that I have? But to come back, the body check-in, start inserting it. Yeah, before you're going to have a money conversation with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents, and just let yourself notice. You know, I always before when I'm, okay, I'm going to have a money conversation. What am I feeling? You know, am I excited? Am I nervous? Am I scared? Am I starting to feel some embarrassment? shame. Again, as I said earlier, maybe you'll notice, maybe you'll remember body checking in the middle of it, in the heat of the moment and go, oh, wait a second. I need a moment here. I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go for a walk. Let me get back. Let me just, I need a moment. I need a moment. Go for a walk. 
go drink some water or afterwards body check-ins are excellent too to just do a review what worked what didn't what could you do different next time so i would say start there and just allow yourself to bring some new awareness to what are the emotions that come up what does this remind you of what story from your childhood are you remembering and you can start there and step two is always learn a bookkeeping system please learn a bookkeeping system And that it will take time. It will take three to six months to feel comfortable at all in a year to actually feel really confident. Get someone to hold your hand with that. Those two things. And then go to my blog or book or podcast to listen to even more how to do body check-ins, how to start to learn what questions to ask to understand your money story more. All right, Barry, before we let you go, we have to have a little something silly and have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. Okay. (laughs) So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Okay. I didn't know this was coming. Exciting. What is your favorite thing to spend money on? First thing that came to me is chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite type of chocolate or brand of chocolate? Okay, I'm at my desk. I'm going to show you too. This is my daily chocolate, Alter Eco. It's organic. It's 85%. I like my chocolate that dark. The second thing is, this was a gift. This box of chocolate, if people can't see it. Anyway, um, it's a huge box of chocolate. I love truffles. And yes. and Vosages, woman-owned company out of Chicago. I think it's V-O-S-G-E-S. Whenever I do a launch or something, that's my splurge once a year or twice a year. There's many other things, but that that was the first thing that came to me. Well, chocolate is a wonderful thing, (laughs) always. Barry, where can people visit your site, listen to your podcast? They can come to my website, barrytesler.com, and it's B-A-R-I-T-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. Awesome. Mamas, we'll have links to Barry's site and her podcast and her book in the show notes. Barry, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Mamas, Barry is a thoughtful, loving voice in the realm of financial education, and I so enjoyed this conversation with her. If you haven't read Art of Money, I highly recommend purchasing it at your local independent bookstore or checking it out of your local library. You'll almost certainly learn something about yourself and your money habits. Now, as always, I've wrapped up my three favorite takeaways from this chat with Barry that you can take into your own money life. First, shutting out our money emotions can keep us stuck. We're not taught to listen to our emotions in any area of our lives, but especially when it comes to money. We have a tendency to push our thoughts and anxieties away, beating ourselves up for not being able to tackle the black and white math of money. But silencing those emotions limits our ability to understand our own money blocks and stories. We miss the pieces of the puzzle that allow us to change our behavior on a deep level so that the black and white math and systems actions can get easier. Try Barry's body check-in. Take a few quiet moments to consider your emotions around money, then ask yourself where those feelings may be coming from. Second, anyone can build a beautiful and productive relationship with money. Barry was the spender growing up. She was an artist and a therapist. Her friends were shocked when she went into bookkeeping. But by staying true to herself and her core skills, she was able to build a wonderful money system that worked with her superpowers instead of against them so that she could bring herself and her family financial comfort and stability. If you feel like you're someone who is just bad with money because you're creative or because you do a certain job, remember that you can pull those skills into your financial life. 
you can have a powerful, valuable relationship with money and reach your goals. Third, our goals can and should shift over time. One of my favorite parts of Barry's story is how she completely overhauled her business when she became a mom. Her needs changed, her vision of her life changed, and she was willing to take a big risk to build the type of business she needed. So many people in Barry's position would have kept going just because the business was doing well and they didn't want to disappoint partners or employees. But that would have burnt Barry out and wouldn't have allowed her to be the mom and entrepreneur she wanted to be. If your goals shift over time, you're not doing anything wrong. You haven't wasted time. You're just finding your path. Stay aware of what you want in life and don't be afraid to make big changes when you need to. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Barry again for coming on the show to share her story and her art of money system. You can get links to Barry's site and her book, along with a summary of our key takeaways in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Barry. That's B-A-R-I. You're incredible. And I'm so glad you came to hang out with Barry and me today. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 